Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Tuesday night. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Brian Scott Rippy here. We are doing our normal, what would be a Sunday show during the year. So we have Walden Rodenberg on. Talked for almost two hours about all angles, Ole Miss Louisville, Matt Corral's performance, the Don Terrio drumming game, got into a lot of different angles on the defensive side of the ball, particularly Ole Miss electing to go with that 3-2-6 front that proved to be very effective against Malik Cunningham and the uh, Louisville offensive attack. So uh, this was kind of the first of, uh, if you remember, if you were kind of an original listener to the podcast, um, our Sunday mega shows for baseball. This is the football version of that. We went, of course, as I always end up doing longer than I thought. It was, I just thought it was a great conversation. Weldon provided a lot of great insight to, you know, the running game, some of the struggles Ole Miss had in that, how good they were defensively, his thoughts on Chance Campbell. I just thought it was a really educational conversation. And of course, we took your questions from the message board at the end so we will uh i can't promise you we'll go two hours every post game show but we might get close we uh if this was week one this was a uh, solid start so anyway good conversation i hope uh you'll uh, hope you'll learn a lot from it and uh you know further celebrate what was a pretty good night to be an old miss rebel so anyway before we get to that I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by skybox sports picks who is skybox sports picks well glad you asked they're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modding mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry. This isn't hard. You guys know the drill at this point. Football season getting cranked up in full swing. If you're into the uh, into the wagering game, you don't want to have the man texting you every Sunday night. Um, you got the scaries already asking where the money is. You need to flip the script and you need to be texting him where your extra funds are at. Skybox is the best way to consistently do that. If you sign up for the college football picks right now, you can still get the features, the futures package free. The uh, NFL starting up this week. You need to check them out. They'll have a package that fits your price range. You can go month long. I'd recommend doing a season long or year-long all-sports pass. It'll pay itself back and then some. But if you want to try it out for a week, month, you can do a daily pass. Whatever it is, they're going to have something that fits your price range. And if you use the promo code RIPPY, you'll get 20% off any purchase. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com, and allow them to consistently lead you to profit. Because you don't want to be flying in this blind. Consistent, excuse me, casinos are not built on losses. And these guys are professionals that are going to guide you to profit better than you can on your own. I promise you that skyboxsportspicks.com podcast also brought to you by LB's university Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg. If you're a subscriber to the Rippy rights podcast, that's Rippy rights.substack.com. Get a newsletter from yours truly three to five times a week. A lot of football in today's newsletter. It's free and you get discounted meats. You get a 16 ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a pack of sausage for five bucks. That's a hell of a way to kickstart your, football watching weekend oxford is so lucky to have lbs it's the best butcher shop in the world lane train special keith carter special fresh seafood all kinds of awesome sausages it is absolutely the best place in the world for your grilling needs go let greg take care of you lbs university avenue across from kroger 
All right, without further ado, here is our first recap pod of the season with Weldon Rodenberg. What's up? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Rights Podcast. I am Brian Scott Rippy on the other end of the line, as he will be every Sunday, but this is technically a Tuesday Sunday, is former Ole Miss recruiting specialist Weldon Rodenberg. We are here to uh, chat some Ole Miss football. The Rebels won 43-24 to over Louisville in the uh, finale of the Chick-fil-A season kickoff. Uh, ton to get to, dude. I'm pretty pumped about having, like, real football and actual results to talk about. No more anticipation. You can actually kind of talk about what happened and what comes next. What's up, dude? Oh, not too much. Happy to be back. Uh, yeah, it's, it's great to have, like, real football. Week zero felt like just a tease, so it was good to see all the teams out there, all the stadiums filled, all that good old fun cliche stuff. But uh, it's back, so that's awesome. Yeah, so for the listeners probably don't know, you were in Los Angeles watching Ed Orgeron get placed on the hot seat. Went out there with your family, went, did the whole Rose Bowl and all that. You want, you were in attendance for UCLA LSU. How was that? We were talking about how just a terrific part of the country that is. How was? Let's get to the, how was the game? We'll start there. <laughs> I, guess, I guess we will start here. Um, so just trip-wise, I mean, it, it just is amazing. I mean, Los Angeles, the weather. We stayed in Newport with my family, uh, went to the game on a bus. You know, the Rose Bowl was as advertised. It really is awesome. It's a great, great experience. Probably, I mean, I've been an LSU fan growing up in Baton Rouge my whole life. Maybe the most anticipated road game that I've ever been on. And, like, my family and other people in Baton Rouge, I mean, this was the one. You know, they were supposed to play in the Rose Bowl in 2006. USC lost to UCLA, like a big upset. They were number one team in the country. And that screwed up everybody's plans. And we ended up going and uh, beating the crap out of Brady Quinn in New Orleans, which was no fun. I mean, who cares about going to the Sugar Bowl for the ninth time? Right. Um, But that's what made that game. I mean, I guess I can go on my mini rant here. And we won't spend too much time on this. I know we're going to talk Ole Miss, but – I think that's what made that game so damn disappointing, you know, just yeah. from an LSU perspective. You know, we'll, we'll get to that later. We'll, we'll start with Ole Miss first. We'll get to my LSU spiel later, but that was a joke. <laughs> yeah, I was about to do, I was about to go ahead and tee you up to do part of it, but you're right. We will get to like a, a lot of the SEC stuff later, but as you've kind of said throughout the, the off season and preseasons, we've talked just whether it's on or off air, it's like, that is a seven-win team that kind of the, the media there drank the Kool-Aid, which is not the first time that happened. And look, I'm not accusing any sort of media contingent of being worse or better than the other. We all fall victim to it. It's sometimes it's just kind of the nature of the industry. But uh, kind of the way LSU was covered heading into the season versus what it looked like in the Rose Bowl was the discrepancy, which you knew was going to be on display, and it, it certainly was. Gosh. I, well, Baton Rouge and LSU was such a unique media center because of just the lack of really anyone else you know there's the saints and that's covered semi heavily in baton rouge i think it's actually kind of lacking the coverage really a lot of new orleans and national uh, athletic and all those kind of deals but baton rouge i mean they always manage to spin it towards a positive angle and sometimes they're right and a lot of times they can be wrong as well it's not really their fault that's their job i think it's just there's a lot going on with that program institutionally, um, coaching wise, just the whole department. There's a lot there. And we'll, like I said, we'll get to that. And I've, I have a lot of strong feelings. And so did a lot of people in Baton Rouge that are at the game. I mean, there is just a 
such a lack of excitement about that team with that's crazy after winning a championship two years ago, but I digress. Yeah, I know that the, the, the I've talked about this with a lot of friends, like the capital eroding, how quickly it's eroded from like the greatest college team ever is fascinating, but I digress as well. We'll, we'll get to some of that stuff later. Let's get in to the game that everyone listening is pretty, I would imagine pretty amped about if you're an Ole Miss fan today, you had to wake up feeling pretty good. Ole Miss beats Louisville 43 to 24 in a game that wasn't really that close. You know, Louisville scored a couple, you know, all of their points in the second half. Ole Miss looked like they maybe got a little bit worn down defensively, but also it's just the nature of the game. You're not going to come out with the same juice when you're up 26 nothing or whatever, 26 3, whatever it was. Then when in the game's in the balance, there's so many places we could start with this. But honestly, I, I would like to circle back and revisit a topic that like, Felt like a story for like half an hour, and then everyone seemed to go about their Saturday. Lane Kiffin was not on the sideline Saturday. He took a voluntary test for COVID after having some, he would described as mild symptoms, but I imagine if you're going to take a voluntary test two days before a pretty big football game, you know, your first of the year, he, he probably had to not be feeling great. And, you know, did you, I don't know if you saw the game day interview. He didn't sound particularly great. He sounded like he had a really bad cold. So I don't know what the deal was there, but long story short, he wasn't on the sideline. And so I think the setup was fairly obvious, right? You just have Durkin do the head coach roaming sideline thing. You keep Lebby in the booth. I'll open it up to a guy that's kind of seen the other side of things here. Everyone loved to kind of debate what, what difference, if at all, it makes. In your mind, if there is a difference of length of it being there, not being there, is there one thing that sticks out? The only real difference um, that I think him being there is, I mean, there's a sense of leadership, sure. But just his ability to call on the fly is real and it's, it's noted and it's something he does throughout games. He'll kind of be like, okay, let me take one here and there, which is what almost every head coach with an offensive background does. But I was telling, you know, friends and family, I was just not overly concerned with him not being there. Levy calls plays. He's been doing it all last year with lane influence. Durkin calls the defense with Partridge's assistance up top. I thought him not naming an interim head coach for this game was an interesting choice. And I also think it was the absolutely correct thing to do. And why do you say that? Because you just have to have the two guys that you trust do their jobs. You know, I mean, you know, Levy has complete control over the offense and Durkin complete control over the defense. Like having them have to juggle you know, time management, clock, all that kind of stuff, which they kind of will already do anyway. Just adding the extra, not pressure, but uh, responsibilities of being the, quote, head coach during the game just wasn't really necessary for this team the way it's built. So I thought it was a great decision. I I expected them to come out being as sharp as they could with, with or without Lane, to be honest. And I imagine the other piece of it was one, like, scenario I was going to offer you if there was a discernible difference in, because I thought you gave a great answer. Like I never thought about it in that way. Right. What's the point of naming a head coach, like acting head coach for that one game? Because look, they're all professionals, but like, it's only probably natural if, you know, X is named the interim technically acting head coach, then that, you know, subconsciously consciously might plant a seed in the back of the other guy's head about, you know, I guess get them out of their routine. As you mentioned, one thing I would offer up and tell me if this true or false, this is just something that popped in my head. If they were trying to like tangibly point to a time where you'd like to have Kiffin there, 
if Corral had struggled a little bit early and had an early turnover or two and the offense got off to a slow start, I know Kiffin's known as a guy who really knows how to communicate with and better quarterbacks. Corral's not really a dude that gets flustered by much, but had things gone south early for him, I imagine it would have made a pretty big difference having Kiffin there to kind of do whatever he does to talk to him if there's even anything to say versus not being there. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I wouldn't put a, too much emphasis into that because, I mean, the trust between him and Levy is real, real close. You know, it's a similar relationship um, with Kiffin. But I think you are right. Just having another voice of reason, if something goes wrong, is always good. You can have a difference. You know, maybe Levy gets after him a little bit and Lane calms him down or vice versa. So there is a positive attribute to having him there in that sense for sure. Yeah, it's like a little bit of the good cop, bad cop between Andy Kennedy and Bill Armstrong, to use a reference from five, six years ago. And when Armstrong left to go under Will Waitstaff at LSU, you kind of lost the buffer. And I think that's why Kennedy lost that last team so quickly is there's no good cop to kind of take him to the side and you know tell explain it to him in not yelling ways. And I wasn't privy to everything that happened in that basketball program. But anyone you talked to, it was like, yeah, like it, it hurt a little losing the buffer that was Bill Armstrong. So interesting point. But it was something that didn't need to be answered because correct was pretty flawless for most of the game. I know you had that second drive where I think they had one or two tip passes and then like a one that was almost an interception that was, I think Ole Miss is only three and out. I actually don't even remember if it was a three and out. But after that, he was pretty flawless. And I guess we'll start there. I know a lot of people have talked about the defense and, you know, Neil wrote in his 10 thoughts, uh, you know, when you cover Ole Miss, it's easy to talk about offense, but defense was kind of the story. I agree, but let's just start with the offense um, I thought Corral was as good as advertised. I know I sent in the show notes today. I didn't think he forced the issue. And I know that's like classic TV guy, like cliche, but he really wasn't trying to like force anything or fit the ball in tight windows. And he didn't really have to because how they were running so wide open. <laughs> but another aspect of it, and this has been floating around the internet. I'm sure you've seen the clip or maybe you saw the replay last night where there was a play in the third quarter where they were trying to work a double move to, I think, Sanders on the right. And Corral was looking there the whole time. That's where the play was. And it clearly wasn't open. The guy didn't bite. And in a split second, he moved his feet slightly to the left and fired a pretty good ball to Dontario Drummond. It would look like a basic play, but that's something that's hard to do. And I think that was indicative of how he approached that entire game, which is great from a decision-making standpoint. That was the one question mark, if you had one at all, with Corral. I didn't even really have a question of that. I was just offering thoughts. What did you think of his performance as a whole? I mean, it just looked – he felt so in control of what they were trying to do. And I think we've talked about it before, just having a second year in a system where instead of, you know, relearning everything, you're just adding on to what you already know. And it was so clear that Corral has just really, really, really mastered what they're asking of him. And that play was a great example. I actually think the second drive was the best thing that could have happened to him in this game. Having a few, like, kind of almost interception tip passes for him to, like, come back down to reality, realize you're in this game, and realize how much he's in control of this offense and be like, okay, I know exactly what I need to do. I know I don't have to force it in this game to win. This is what they're going to play the entire game, which is what they basically did. And just give it to my athletes, make it my reads, just be smooth, be simple. And he was the entire game. 
truly never, ever looked flustered, made the right decisions, never forced it. I mean, you he really was not flawless, but damn near perfect. It was as impressive of a game he's played since he's been here, honestly. Yeah, and he, it was interesting. I talked to a couple of Louisville guys on the podcast last week, and Louisville lost 60% of their receptions from a year ago, you know, Tutu Atwell and Des Fitzpatrick. Those guys are pretty good receivers. and Definitely. Yeah, they were kind of like Ole Miss in the sense where you were kind of wondering who could be a number one, who would be the early connection. And both, like the Louisville guy I talked to and then the film guy that worked at Stadium, Michael Felder, both kind of emphasized the fact that it was important for – Malik Cunningham to find a guy he can rely on early. And that was going to be critical for Louisville and to the Ole Miss defense's credit that didn't really happen, but it did happen on the Ole Miss front with Don Terrio Drummond. It quickly became evident that this was going to be in some form or another, the Don Terrio Drummond game. He finishes with nine receptions, 177 yards. I don't have that up. I'm pretty positive in a touchdown. Um, what did you think of how he was used? Because you mentioned – it took me back to a previous podcast that we did, and the lovably rabid group on the message board pointed out, like, that I had misread something on Neil's thing. It was when we were trying to figure out what happened to Orlando Umana in the injury yeah. front. And another thing was is that we were trying to just guess who was playing slot in the scrimmage. And I think you mentioned I would guess it was Drummond, which I thought was interesting. And it may or may not have been in that scrimmage. But I just – I don't know why I thought of that last night, and that's a long-winded way of saying he was in the slot a lot last night, and Louisville really didn't have an answer. I, to my untrained football eye, a lot of times it looked as simple as whatever they were running on the outside, the slant on the inside was wide open. What did you think of Drummond's night and how they used him? Uh, they put him all over the place. I mean, he was playing that, like, hip tight end, like kind of slot back role. He played a little bit outside. He played a little bit inside, and – uh, that's really a kind of a skill set that Levy loves is being able to have a receiver that can play inside, outside, backfield, just be really versatile. I mean, Drummond was great. His hands are probably the best hands I've seen at Ole Miss. I think, really? yeah, I think they're he has strong but soft hands, snatches it so effortlessly. Maybe AJ Brown would be a comparison just of someone who catches the ball like he does where it's just effortless, like Jarvis Landry at LSU back in the day where, like, really, like, if it's in his vicinity, he's catching the ball. And Drummond's just like that. Um, actually, a recruiting story on him, we were kind of iffy. We didn't know what we were going to do with Drummond. We knew we wanted a Juco guy. The pool was a little meh. And they went to go watch him in the national – the Juco national championship – and during warm-ups, he's, he's the punt returner, and he is literally snatching punts one-handed, just snatching him out of the air. And Coach Luke was like, yeah, that's all I need to see with this kid. You, don't, you can't teach that. You know, the rest of the stuff, he'll figure it out. But that's just unnatural, stupid stuff. And one of the reasons I know you're getting a hang of this pod thing was I didn't even have to tee you up to do your, your evaluation of Drummond. I was, that was where I was going next. Like that's the, one of the greatest streaks you bring to this pod is kind of being able to not only evaluate, but also kind of like articulate what guys see in evaluation. I think that's what people, particularly on the message boards, appreciate like about this segment and this vert, like this form of the podcast. Yeah. And so since you already kind of gave the lowdown on what Drummond does well, 
I'll kind of play devil's advocate. I don't even know if that counts as devil's advocate, but as we learned last week, I can make up whatever I want to be fine on this show. What do you think kept him from doing what he did last night? And I know it's only one game this year, but more consistently a season ago, because I approached Drummond as a known commodity for the lack of a better phrase. I was like, he's fine, good hands, reliable, but I didn't see that particularly in the opener. What do you think kept him from doing that last year? And what did he unlock last night? Um, I wouldn't really say anything kept him from doing it last year. Uh, I think there was less targets because you had a guy named Elijah Moore playing slot. Yeah, that helps. You know, it's basically verified that, like, Kiffin, they force-fed Elijah Moore the ball because he was always open. He always caught it. I mean, he he was that special and that good. Uh, But if you remember the Florida game last year, Drummond had the first two touchdowns of the season. You know, he had the first deep bomb. Uh, where he that double move and then he had another touchdown on the next play and obviously he threw that crazy ass play to Ely. I think it's really the only reason he didn't show up as much last year was just sheer targets because of just how much Elijah Moore was an emphasis in the offense. It wasn't any negative or really too much development this year. I think it's just sheer availability and targets. That's a great point. And it's one of the things I'm guilty of in media. And a lot of us are, whether you're watching as a fan, whereas like with Jonathan Mingo, it was like, he was kind of, I feel like Drummond was lumped in with Mingo at times where like, if you could have someone quote unquote, put it all together after Elijah Moore or what, even for just preparing for 2021 where Mingo is actually a different story. But I think it's a good point that you pointed out that we're like Drummond wasn't the same. Like he had good hands, was pretty polished, pretty refined. Like it was just a matter of targets. And I've never, I guess you never think when a guy gets the football as much as Moore did last year, what the trickle down effect of that is in terms of it being like not a good thing individually for other guys. Not that obviously it's a bad thing, but like I, I guess I've never thought about it in that sense of, you know, there's only so many targets to go around. And you mentioned how good of his how good his hands were is on display on that play. I guess I think it was in the second half, but it, the clip's gone viral. The throw that Corral made near the sideline where Drummond just kind of stuck his hands out there and it seemed like Thank it you. stuck there like glue. No bobble, no anything. Is that kind of peak Drummond in terms of his hands? Truly. I mean, that was amazing. I think that was on the uh, like the two-minute drive at the end of the first half. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I mean, of course, first of all, the throw is unbelievable. Stupid. Now, he you can't be doing that too much. You're playing Bama, that thing's getting picked off. I think that guy was just like honestly shocked he made that throw. <laughs> I mean, he was in, the corner was in perfect position and Corral just barely got it over him. But that, I mean, that was ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, that's the kind of stuff he has the ability to do. I mean, those hands are so natural. You just, you can't teach that. I know we're bouncing around back and forth a little bit, but I think that's okay. I just, I'd like to cover everything in this win. One of the things that I, I didn't have written down to ask you, but when you said something about Corral order, it being the second year in the scheme and the system it made me think of what you're talking about with that throw where this is hard to tangibly describe. I'll use Joe Burrow as maybe the most extreme example of this where Burrow's first full year as the quarterback LSU, he wasn't bad, but they weren't very good around him. It didn't seem like they had the pieces around him to kind of run the system the way they wanted to, or I say run the system. Like there was much more of a prove it with Burrow because one, like the whole Joe Brady thing. And, and like, I, I don't think anyone could have envisioned it working as well as it did. But point being, it was his second year in the program. He looked a lot more comfortable. And how once he got through, I've heard him say this on part of my take, once they won that Texas road game, he just kind of looked like a different dude. Like he was as confident as ever. And I just wonder with Corral, 
like as he kind of reached whatever that level is like of just whether it's not even stuff that happens in a game it's just looking in control it's almost a body language thing like is there any validity to that at all if that makes any sense no that makes sense I think there can be I think comparison is not so far-fetched you know you have to grow into it I mean Burrow that first year like that LSU team was actually a pretty good team. I mean, they went to the Fiesta Bowl and beat a really good UCF team. I mean, I know we like to shit on UCF for being the, the people's champion, but that team was good. Um, Corral, I think just the difference is just his control, his demeanor, his leadership. I think he's just so bought in on football. You know, I read that article, the ESPN article that was up there talking about how like you know Kiffin was losing weight and Corral was like screw it I'm gonna I'm gonna stop drinking and just focus on ball like that as a college kid I mean that's that's a hard decision to make I think he's beginning to grasp the reality of I could be a first round quarterback if I start acting like one playing like one believing I am one and some of the preseason hype for guys like will bury them I think for Corral it was like eye-opening like oh my gosh People really think I can do this. Maybe I really can, and I. But I'm gonna have to go prove it. And he sure, sure as hell had a first good show. That's a great point, and I, you articulated that better than I could have. But that's sort of what part of what I was trying to tap into there, where it's the belief factor and how to having tangible evidence. And I think we've talked about this to some degree on some of our previous podcasts, but maybe not to the detail. Uh, that it deserves. I've written a couple of times in the newsletter over the last month about how just kind of crazy it is that Matt Corral's still here and doing this under this coaching staff, particularly after, I mean, he's come a long way from shirking Rich Rodriguez's play calls in the 2019 Egg Bowl and just telling Braylon Sanders, I know what they said, to hell with that, we're going to do this anyway. I mean, that night after that happened, in my mind, and we're always guilty of kind of putting things in concrete before they actually are, he was done. He, he was Fair or unfair is probably not the better way to describe it, but he was kind of wrong with the way that whole thing was handled. And it just is a product of college football at times, but it sucked. The fact that he's still here doing what he's doing is really a remarkable story in this day and age of college football. And so if if there's a question in there, in your mind, you mentioned it it kind of shrinks some guys, the offseason hype. Some guys like Corral, it was eye-opening. How important was last year, not from just a success standpoint, but for just Corral to see, okay, this is what it's like having fun playing football and having you know a, a couple guys that know what they're doing running the program. I mean, how valuable is that? I mean, it's it's so crucial. I mean, I think Corral's just journey, story, everything about what's gone on with this kid since high school to where he is now is such an underrated, you know, narrative story. Just everything about it really is. You just don't see it that often. I mean, he's commits to USC, gets dropped as an LA kid, then commits to Florida. Mullen basically says, I'm, I want this Emory Jones kid. That looks stupid. Yes, it does. We'll get to Emory Jones later. Um, Then eventually like, you know, credit to Matt Luke and Phil Longo. Like, they wanted this kid. They believed this kid could run that Longo system. And for whatever you, whatever you believe about Phil Longo, he was actually incredibly important in getting Corral all Miss. They had a weird but real connection. Um, then it just gets blown to shit when they hire Rich Rod. 
where, you know, they're running route trees that don't make sense. And Crowell is trying his best, but also making his own mistakes on his own fault. That sorts itself out. He decides to stay because of Kiffin and Levy. And now he's legitimately maybe the best quarterback in the country with Bryce Young sitting there in the, in the weeds <laughs> trying to make his point because he's really good too. But it's just – there's it's not getting talked about as enough, and I think it will once the Bama game comes around and all those bigger, more marquee matchups. It's going to be talked about more. But, I mean, it really is just real, an amazing story. It is. Uh, you're dead on with that. I, I could not agree more because like the, the opposite in the spectrum. I know this is not an apples to apples comparison, so don't mistake this for one. But the opposite in the spectrum is a kid like Tate Martell, who's at UNLV on like his third school and any small sign of adversity, he's just out. And look, I'm not the whole like dump on millennials guy. I think kids should be able to move. Maybe there should probably be some sort of limit on that. To some degree, I could hear both sides of that argument. Sure. But the other side of the coin is that. And the grass is not always greener elsewhere. And shit, if there's ever an illusion of grass being greener elsewhere, I, I can't imagine it looking greener than Corral in the winter of 2019. But if you're right. It's a remarkable story. And the last thing I'll have on that when you're talking about it getting blown to shit with, like, the route concepts and stuff that Rich Rod runs, one of the things we'd always crack up about in, in like, the local media circle was dudes would come in I mean, you, they could have hired Paul, hired Paul Johnson to run the triple offense option, and some kid would have still come in there and said, yeah, it's basically what I ran in high school. Every single dude says that. And, like, if you needed any evidence that it's bullshit, it's that Corral, to his credit, kind of had to publicly say, you know, hey, it's not that dissimilar. Like, I ran a lot of the concepts in high school, and the reality is it wasn't, and it didn't fit him very well. But I always just found that aspect of it humorous. I mean, seriously – Someone could go try to run a 111 defense and that defensive lineman would still come into our local media thing and be like, yeah, it's basically what I ran in high school. It's the same yeah. shit. <laughs> it's just kind of funny how that works out. But no kind of reeling it, reeling it back into the game, Ole Miss really like, put the foot on the gas and didn't really give Louisville any sort of breathing room. Um, and we'll get to the defense in a second, but I thought the offense, like you probably would have liked to finish another drive or two go in the first half, but they, they were really pretty flawless. And one of the things I want to get into today, because I think you'll be able to articulate articulate this better than I could, there were times where Ole Miss like, wasn't really that successful running the ball, but then you look up and they still have 188 yards at the end of the game. And before I make myself sound like an idiot, well, from your naked eye view watching what happened last night, what do you think – Like was the cause of the some of the struggles in the run game. I thought Corral actually saved them a little bit. The whole 12 carries for 55 yards was actually kind of sneaky effective and Ole Miss needed it because to me, and this is the untrained eye, so feel free to throw it back in my face, some of the stuff they were trying to do in the outside zone concepts seemed to not be working at all. Maybe it was more interior, but what do you think kind of went wrong, if you could call it that, in the run game? I guess, first of all, I'll start with Corral with 12 carries for 55. That cannot happen. That cannot continue to be the norm with this offense. You can't have him getting hit like he got hit last night. And he's competitive and blah, 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 blah. There, there's going to have to be a real serious talk with Kiffin and Levy with Corral and being like, you cannot start trucking players. You cannot not slide. Like, you have to be smarter because if you go down – this thing is going to go down quickly with you. So that that can't – he cannot be saving this team offensively running the ball. 
Um, but in the first half, yeah, the first few drives were not very clean from a running standpoint. They were trying some outside zone stuff, some toss stuff out of shotgun. You know, it's, it's concepts they've run all last year and this year. Um, I think it probably has a little bit to do with just offensive line getting used to being like, crap, we're in a game. Like, you know, we're hitting another team. Um, I thought Louisville actually blitzed at some really impressive, like really good times. They blitzed a lot on second down to get you out of schedule. And, and that's sometimes. Brian Brown's calling card, former Ole Miss alum Brian Brown. He, like, yes. do you read anything about that defense and how he does it? That's kind of his thing. So sometimes, you know, the defense was just winning. Like they called the right call when on, on offense, I mean, on defense when we were trying to call an outside zone on offense. And that happens. Um, they fixed it up late. Um, Ely was incredible out of the backfield catching the ball. I thought he was really average running the ball. Not Average is not fair because he's real speed, but uh, he has some real contact balance problems that I think might hamper his future abilities, but he's still a hell of a college running back, and he's going to be just fine. Uh, Snoop was amazing. He was really effective. Parrish did what he needs to do. Bullock didn't get any carries, I don't think. No, uh, I don't. He did not register a carry last night. Um, that so that's you know that's okay. Uh, that's fine. He's going to get carries throughout the season at some point. But uh, they kind of shaped up a little bit. They started running some more inside zone stuff. Kind of their bread and butter. Um, they they looked really good at the yeah. end of it. Yeah, they start. They struggled early on, but that happens. I'm not overly concerned about the run game at all. No, yeah, you're right. And, like, I, I probably framed that asking that as a negative. But, like, when so much, like, went right for them last night, I was just curious, like, what you thought, if at all, like, the hiccups were in some parts of the run game because it was evident. I thought the point you made about Ely and the contact balance thing, to be really uh, – to like, that stuck out to me because I, I saw somewhere on the message board uh, uh, talking about, like, Ely – I think the guy's take was like shying away from contact, but look, I, I know that's not the case. I know it's a message board take, but I think what he's like really seeing is what you said. Elaborate a little bit more when you talk about the contact balance issues, because, you know, you just, we talked about the last time we had a pod about Plumley talking about how great Ely is in the open field. And those are two different things, right? He's very good in the open field, but what do you mean about the contact balance aspect of it as best you could describe it? Well, I don't know who made the comment on the message board, but he's not totally wrong. I mean, Ely, when he was 1v1 versus a backer, was almost shuddering away from, from contact. And it, it was it's something that he does kind of consistently. He did it a lot last year where he kind of braces for contact instead of putting his shoulder down and, like, running through a defender. But he's, he's a smaller, slighter kid. He's not really running over people. That's not his M.O., but if you watch a guy like Kamara, just his ability and balance, just to be able to not take those big hits, just kind of find a way to get to the ground, whether it's, you know, not necessarily a spin move, but just be able to avoid just number-on-number number contact uh, is something Ely's got to learn how to do because, you know, he's had some injury history with his shoulder and just you can't have him out. He's too good and too dynamic. But when it comes to what I mean by contact balance is what you see out of Snoop which is he's a one-cut runner. He's got the ability to bounce off defenders, use stiff arms, be able to keep square while running downfield. Um, just he had a hell of a game. And um, that's kind of when you see just a guy running with that kind of power, the ability to just kind of defenders and knock off him uh, is something that I think Ely and Parrish have 
to get a little bit better at, but that's not, it's kind of a natural thing. It's not an easily taught trait necessarily. You just went there with Snoop. I had it a little bit later, but this is as good a time as anywhere to go. Cause I think what I wrote in today's newsletter, which you can check out rippywrites.substack.com was, you know, if, you know, if he was fourth string on the depth chart, they released, I know those things aren't, you know, that was particularly not- inside the building, not set in stone. It's just a product of the depth they have. I think what I wrote was uh, no one told him, he did have a hell of a game last night, and and it's funny. I'll, I'll let you. I'll tee you up in the same direction, or feel free to take this wherever you want. But when you talk to Siski at practice in 2019, that was if, if Siski has a chip on his shoulder at all, that's probably one of the sources of it. He mentioned a couple of times to me just in passing about like you know that was one of the last kids we took. I read some shit about we shouldn't have taken him, and now look what he's doing type of thing. Kind of give me the background on how Snoop Connor got the Ole Miss, what you guys saw on him, and why he was a late take. No, there was some real debate on Snoop. There was some real fair debate. He uh, He's an interesting kid. He played running back. I mean, sorry, he played quarterback in high school. Um, and, you know, that's a tough eval. I mean, Cam Akers did it as well. And uh, to compare those two really wouldn't be fair because Cam Akers might be the best high school running back I mean, the best high school player in Mississippi since, you know, what's my boy from Philadelphia? Uh, Marcus Dupree. Marcus Dupree, right. Um, So, I mean, he he was not the fastest, but he was not slow. He didn't have great hips, but he was so strong. And we came on campus, you know, we liked the kid a lot. And we were like, you know what? You know, of course, the funny thing is the two kids we were debating on was Brees Hall at Iowa State and Snoop Connor. And we two pretty up, good well, options. Two pretty good options. Um, and we ended up being like, you know, we just got to take this kid. Like, he's he's our kind of guy. He'll develop. And he's just – he got so much stronger once he got to campus. And, I mean, he's been a hell of a, he's been a, hell of a player. And it's – I wouldn't give anyone too much credit because there was real debate. Like, no one really knew what we were going to get out of him, which that happens all the time when you're evaluating these kids, you never really, really know. And so there was some internal stuff there, but he's got, he's just gotten better and better and better. Yeah. And one of the things you said there was he's our kind of guy. He will develop. And, you know, he's been a guy from the time he he's been eligible to play a game. I mean, he was a factor from the pretty much the first game on in 2019. And I know it's a little bit different at running back because you need so much depth there at times, you know, if you're going to be good, like a court, I, I don't know. I guess the Adrian Petersons of the world, particularly in college are kind of a rare breed these days. And that's really similar to all levels of football, but even that being the case, a guy that played a lot as a freshman played a lot at the start of last year, but with Henry Parrish's emergence and a little bit of control, Bullock, mainly Henry Parrish towards the end of last year, you know, to the to the untrained eye, it was kind of like, okay, Snoop's just their short down guy now. He had some carries siphoned away from him. And just it, as best you can, speaking to his personality, I, I imagine there's some other guys that would be like, to hell with this, I'll go somewhere to get 20 to 25 a game, which I imagine you have some options. But that you never heard anything about that, that doesn't mean it wasn't the case. I'm also not saying it was. Like, what does, do you think that says, if anything at all about him, or am I reading too much into that? probably reading maybe a little bit too much into it. Um, he's a pretty quiet kid. Not a lot of talk there, just loves football. And I don't really remember hearing a lot of discouragement from Snoop. I think, you know, 
it's just natural. Kevin Smith came and brought basically brought Parrish with him. And to Parrish's credit, he's been like phenomenal in practice, like truly like game breaker was just absolutely a surprise coming into practice last year. He earned his carries. Like Snoop did not lose carries. Parrish was just so good. Like we just eventually had to get him on the field. But even at the end of last year, I mean, the LSU games, when it started raining, they're like, all right, we got to get Snoop the ball. And he he really started taking some of those short down yardage. But as you see, and I feel like I always notice, like once Snoop gets going, it's like this is Snoop's show. I, mean, I felt like he was in for like three or four possessions in a row yesterday. And they were like, I mean, this kid, we're not going to stop giving the ball. I mean, all he's doing is wrecking everybody. And, uh, you know, and that's not a – it's not a demotion to be like, all right, this guy is guaranteed to get us three or four yards. Like, let's get him in there on short distance and let's go. I mean, that's not that's not a bad thing or a negative thing just because he's not starting out the drive. Um, I think he's just developed into a guy that you can trust in short yardage, which I feel like Ole Miss has not had in seven years since I've been there at least. Maybe Wilkins was decent at it, but it's he's just been awesome. There's nothing else to say about it. That was an issue under Freeze. And honestly, I, I caught myself today, kind of the last thing on the running game, or at least the running backs for the time being, I caught myself today when I was writing the newsletter, was wanting to kind of paint the picture of like Ole Miss just went into, we're going to run the ball down your throat mode in the second half and really chew clock with the way they play. It's not really the whole chewing clock thing, but first half, 21 runs, 20 passes, second half, 20 runs, 12 passes. I can't imagine all of that's a total accident. But what is having that type of versatility in your backfield and that type of depth due to your overall team versatility in terms of the way you can win games? And I mean that in the sense that, like, of course, I don't think anyone would ever bet against Ole Miss in a shootout, you know, given a couple opponents. You get my point. Right. But, like, they did show a little bit of the ability last night to, oh, we're up 23 to nothing. We're just going to keep running at you and wear your ass down, even if you're not chewing up a lot of clock. Like, how much of can a diversified and like deep backfield like that help your overall team diversity in the different ways you can win games? I mean, it's it's so important, especially with the way that Ole Miss plays football. I mean, they're trying to score in every possession, and they're just begging and pleading that the defense stops, you know, the other team so we can just have the ball back and score again. I mean, it's just such an offensive-led team, per se. And when you can ability, if you have the ability to score like they do and the ability to slow the game down, go fast and slow, it's just such an advantage. I mean, especially the way we play analytically on fourth and short, no matter where you're at, to be able to consistently run the ball, but also, you know, have a quarterback that can run, can throw. Just there's no angle that you have a weakness at on offense from a skill position standpoint makes you so much harder to deal with. And, I mean, you saw Notre Dame against Florida State. I mean, they were up by, like, 18 points. They couldn't run the ball and close the game out. Good point. And they didn't trust the quarterback to make real third-down throws to close the game out. So now you're all Miss. You know, your offense is so damn difficult. There's going to be games where you may, like, shock some team and be up 21 points and be like, all right, well, now we've got to, like, really kind of slow it down. But not from a tempo standpoint, but just from a – we got to start handing the ball off a little bit. We got to start being a little bit different because we've got this lead. We're not going to not try to score, but we can do anything we want to do now. And just having that kind of game control is just really impressive. 
One of the, I'm just really going through the notes that I wrote down both last night on pen and paper and then kind of tried to put most I could in the newsletter today. Just another random note I wrote down was after talking a lot in the offseason about using utilizing Ely out of the slot, there didn't seem to be a ton of that last night. And again, no. one, it's one game. Two, when you say use him out of the slot, I, I'm not even actually sure what I expected in terms of number of snaps there in general. How much of that, though, do you think was just simply a byproduct of the amount of success they were having moving Drummond around, or do you think there's any correlation to that at all? I just found that to be interesting one game again, but you did hear that a lot in the offseason and didn't see a ton of it in the first game. Yeah, I never really understood that media narrative or that idea that Ely and Parrish are going to play in the slot because that just didn't make any sense to me, at least to me. And you may, maybe we'll see it, but when they're in the backfield, some of the routes they run out of the backfield is basically you're a receiver. I mean, right. they run that one play where it's a jet sweep with Drummond coming across, fake the ball to Drummond. He goes to the flat and Ely shoots right up the seam. I mean, you're basically a slot receiver, just you're not out of the slot. I don't see them taking Drummond or Mingo or Sanders off the field to get one of our running backs into the slot. I don't think you're going to see a lot of that. And you know, I'm not that smart. I'm not telling people they're dumb, but I just don't I don't see that being a part of the offense going forward very much unless they go five wide. Then sure he'll be outside. Yeah. And so the 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 one of the things you mentioned about that was is that a product to like if that were going to actually be the case, would that would do we maybe mistake that for they could do that if Plumley and Drummond and whoever or Pearson and whoever else you want to throw in there? Like if all those guys sucked and they're like, we're not very good in the slot, like is that something like would that I yeah. guess is that more of a contingency plan than actually like a plan of attack in that sense? That would be my guess. Yeah. I mean, I just because I mean. Yeah, I, I don't really know how much else to put to that one, honestly. Right. Yeah, I, I was just kind of curious because they no, talked no, no, no. again. It's tired media narratives. They just talked about it a ton, and then you only saw it like two snaps. One of them at work, Corral did throw him a pretty good ball. I don't remember what that was. It was kind of almost like a clear out thing, and he did catch one pass out of the slot. If I'm not mistaken, but I, I, to piggyback on top of that, to give you something that you like is actually worth talking about. <laughs> when you have someone that's that good out of the backfield in Ely. How does that change how defense is covered? Because when you think – we talked about one of Ely's strengths. We talked about his weakness. We talked about one of his strengths being that good in space. When you have a guy that's a threat to catch the ball out of the backfield that consistently, I would imagine that would have to put a lot more pressure on defense and pass protection because a lot of the times when you have a more slower lumbering guy as your safety valve, to use a very old term, you're not as worried about it to where you leave Ely in space and he just dumps it off in the, you know, in the flat or whatever. Like that could be 70 yards to the house in a heartbeat. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the crazy thing about Ely is that, He's really like as a check down back, he's great, but he's like a legit vertical passing threat. Like he has a legit hands. He is an actual problem going up the field as kind of like, I mean, I always bring up the Saints because Kamara like can legitimately line up outside and run a route and beat an NFL defender. Ely can legitimately run a vertical route and beat a linebacker or safety or corner because he's that fast and he has such good hands. Um, it's a real problem. I mean, I cannot stop talking about the quarterback draw play. That was just, I mean, that's 
literally football genius. I mean, that was an amazing. And it sucks play. it didn't count because that was the, clearly yeah. the sexiest play of the yeah. night. And for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, it's the oh. they they faked the pass, then faked Corral running a draw, and then he just threw almost the Tim Tebow like not an actual jump pass, but just you know flicked it off to him. Legal no, man downfield. Defense but- had no chance on that play. Now to not to almost discredit the play or Levy or Kiffin, but South Coastal Carolina ran the play last year. Okay. They're not the first people to do it. I had never seen Coastal obviously run the play because I don't watch Coastal Carolina. I don't care how many games they won last year. But that was – I mean, I just couldn't – I had the biggest smile on my face. I was just like, <laughs> oh, my God, that play was so stupid. <laughs> and I think they called it wrong because if you're engaged, it's not blocking down the field. I don't know that for sure. But, but yeah, Ely's – I mean, that play was ridiculous. I know that's off topic, but that was amazing. No, it was. I was going to get to that later anyway, because I, I saw you tweeted about it too. But I've, I mean, even just to some schmuck like me, when they called that play, I was like, that was sick. I don't even care that it didn't count. <laughs> that was awesome. The last thing I'll have for you we'll, before we get to the de- defensive side, at least last offensive note for now, one of the things I wrote down was, and I know you've been firmly in the Casey Kelly camp at tight end, but I, Again, Kiffin's injury policy is weird. And so presumably he's been battling some sort of injury. He wasn't on the two deep. He missed parts of camps with an injury. I don't pretend Casey to Kelly know. Casey Kelly is what we're talking yeah. about? Yeah. I, didn't, he, didn't he tear his ACL skiing? Casey Kelly? I could have sworn I saw that. Yeah, I, oh. think he, I think he's coming back from that. I think he's been injured for a while because he tore his knee up like on spring break or something. We'll I, get the uh, – To be wrong we'll get- on that. My we'll bad. get the research department on that. Yeah. Well, we'll see. But I, I again, the product of not being there every day, I, I don't know exactly. And then Kiffin having, of course, like the injury policy. But point being, at tight end last night, it was really kind of the Chase Rogers show. You saw one early target to Hudson Wolf that didn't connect. Yeah. And not to make oh, like a, a lot out of one game or a mountain out of a moho in that sense. But Rogers caught two passes and showed he's capable of hands. But I thought the different ways they used him – as a blocker was a real advantage. And so I'm just curious your thoughts on him, but it seemed like they moved him around to a couple of different slots and used him in a lot of different ways. And you heard he was an effective blocker throughout camp, but just in my mind, I hadn't like seen it. And I felt like I saw it last night because they did use him in a variety of different formations and ways to block. Yeah. They love using tight ends. They love using him all over the place, split out wide in the nub on the line. And uh, Rodgers is a, a good blocker, a very serviceable SEC blocking tight end, which is incredibly helpful. And he's not a total liability with his hands, so you know he can have some effort and effect out outside of the tackle box. Um, honestly, I was like kind of shocked to see Hudson Wolf out there when he was. I was like, oh shit, there he is! <laughs> like I didn't know he was be playing this early. And I mean, I think people kind of forget about Hudson Wolf here and there. I mean, the kid was the second-rated tight end in the country. I mean, he's a massive a human being, hell of a football player. And I mean, he had a kind of a crazy back deal or whatever. But you know, clearly he's healthy, and he's gonna. It's gonna take some time for him just to be like, oh crap! Like I used to be beaten up on a bunch of shitty players in the middle of Tennessee. Now I'm playing in the SEC. So there'll be some development and just getting comfortable out there. But I, it's a hell of a sign to see him. I mean, that was like the second possession of the game, him already out there. Um, I'm, I'm not that worried about that position. I think when Casey Kelly comes back, he's a grinder and a fighter. You may not want to build your tight end room like Casey Kelly's, but he actually has some real hands and some uh, some ability as a receiver. 
Rodgers can block. Wolf will be able to block. Demarcus Thomas is a thicker kid that can catch and block. So they've got some some pieces there to kind of wrap that position up. I'm I not worried about them. Ole Miss goes into the half up 26 to nothing. Um, you've obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm stating the obvious here, but they were very much in control of that game. Um, or did they go in? No, no, it was 26. It was 26 yeah. yeah, I was going to say it's the first time since 2016 they had shut out an opponent. Uh, Georgia game 2016, the first time they shut out an opponent. Oh, really that's... clicking on all cylinders. Like, I say that. They seemed like they left a little bit to be desired offensively. You had a field goal or two in the mix there. I think two field goals in the first half, but pretty solid performance offensively. And then, of course, as is on brand with this podcast, it takes us an hour to probably get to the overarching storyline. The defense pitched a shutout. That's something that has not been done at Ole Miss football in a half and half a decade. That's a long time. At the, it's, it's funny because week one always gives you funny results and things that aren't necessarily true, even though they may look true. And so I wrote down a very short list of things that I do know about this defense. And so feel free to agree or disagree with any one of them. The first one being they're faster. I don't know if that's a strength and conditioning thing, but they get to the football. It's probably not at the level you'd want, but it's certainly faster than a year ago. The second one I had was they're certainly deeper in the secondary, which seemingly has allowed them to be a little bit more versatile. It's like they went to that three, two, six look and they were just cool with leaving Tashim Johnson out there as the sixth guy, probably not a luxury they might have. I guess you could consider Tyler Knight there too, but yeah. maybe not something you could always have a couple of years ago. And then the talent at linebacker thing with Jacques Jones seemed to be validated. Chance Campbell, his performance speaks for himself but they did lose two linebackers to targeting penalties. And we can get to the targeting aspect of it in a little bit, but even with, if my notes are right, I don't think Momo Sanogo saw the field until the third quarter and they survived with him and Ashanti Sistrunk and Austin keys and yeah. seemed fine. Uh, I threw a lot at you there, but do you disagree with any of those three? Um, the defense looked really good. I mean, it's just, it's just impossible to say anything else besides that. Uh, they the way they did it, I thought was really fascinating. Just basically being like, we're gonna muck it up with three defensive linemen, and we're gonna have a lot of really athletic DBs, which is our deepest position, and we're just gonna really run after you, all eleven of the ball, all those fun cliches. But I mean, they just were so assignment sound. I mean, I don't think the play that Jalen Jones made on that throwback screen got talked about near enough. That was. I mean, as good of a defensive play as you'll see, I mean, that entire night, that was the best play of the night. They just weren't making those kinds of plays for the past few years. I mean, on these just bubble screens, the guys are taking away the edge on the blockers and feeding it inside like you're supposed to do. I mean, all these small things that make, you know, bad defenses good is what they were doing. And, uh, I mean, Chance Campbell, you know, I didn't know what I was going to see out of that kid. But his athleticism was, like, legitimately shocking. I mean, he was keeping up with Cunningham all over the field. I mean, he was in Cunningham's head the entire game. It was really, really, really impressive. And, you know, not having Momo out there to the third quarter is probably exactly what they want. Now, they don't want to lose the two linebackers, of course, for the targeting stuff. But, I mean, just depth. I mean, all three levels played really well. I mean, there's definitely some – 
things you want to see better. And I think that Louisville's game plan was total dog crap and it made Ole Miss look a little bit better than they probably really are. But it's hard to be it's hard to be disappointed with what they showed last night. I you've you made a couple of great points that I like to hit on there. The first one I'll get to was the Chance Campbell aspect of it. And Herb Street, he's a great broadcaster. I actually had a like a semi-not serious list of things I liked and didn't like. And I decided not to read on this podcast or put in the newsletter yet. We might test that out tomorrow. One of the things was I'd like to see Herbie a little oranger. He, he, he loves him a spray tan. And normally at the beginning of the year, you get peak Herbie orange. He's fresh out of that tanning booth. And oh, he yeah. looks like he is ready to go vacation in Cabo when he yeah. gets in that damn booth. And maybe my TV was just wrong. I just didn't see that from Herbie, but I was very disappointed in that. Hopefully he'll rectify that quickly before week two. But one of the things that makes him a great announcer is he picks up on things partially like you were saying was you said, you know, it's funny because you, you, you're you on this podcast, you've recruited basically the whole roster, but Chance Campbell, one of those guys you did not, right, is a newcomer coming in immediately this year. You said you didn't know what to expect from an athleticism standpoint. Herbie was talking about that a little bit last night on the broadcast where it's like, First game at Ole Miss, first game in the SEC, and they're cool with letting him spy Malik Cunningham whenever they had that on. And I imagine for a guy that knows a hell of a lot more football than I do, that that's almost – badge of honor is such a corny way to put it, but that's got to be telling to how much trust they have in his ability as a linebacker, right? I mean, that's a tough yeah. first assignment. It's a very, very, very tough first assignment. I mean, that's – spying a quarterback – I mean, especially at that level, especially with a kid like Cunningham, though though he played terrible, like is still a dynamic athlete, is it, very, very difficult. And he did it to damn near perfection. And um, I didn't recruit Chance, but we did start doing some film on him whenever his the possibility of him showing up came to be. And, I mean, you saw some of the stuff on film. You saw him just be able to read, react, fill gaps tackle like a you know a real linebacker supposed to tackle I mean he had those traits I just didn't know the sideline to sideline was going to be there and it was very exciting and also like legitimately shocking to see just how athletic and dynamic he looked he, he literally was everywhere I mean anyone watching with any football acumen at all could be like holy shit 44 was just all over the place last yeah. night and so you talk about the sideline to sideline and of course I know there's a there's an athleticism and, and giftedness, for the lack of a better word, that comes with that. But I, one of the things I was going to ask you is how much of that is sheer athleticism and how much it is motor as well? Because you do – like some of the great linebackers are just wired differently in that way. How Like what is kind of the balance between that guy just has the great football motor that all this older scouts love to say and shit like that versus just sheer ability? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a lot more sheer ability just to be able to, if you have it in you, you can do it, you show it. Football motor is both a positive and a negative trait. Um, it's a positive if you're a hell of an athlete and you have a hell of a motor, but it's a really big negative whenever you suck. And the only good thing you can say is that you have a motor because <laughs> that just means you try hard. So that's not necessarily the most positive thing as an attribute, if you say, when you're evaluating a kid. But Campbell has both. I mean, he really was all over the place, but he also was doing it at like a really, really high level, not just, you know, doing just what he's supposed to do, but plays were breaking down. He's just all he was all over the place. All really all the linebackers were. I mean, he was the standout, I would say. But I mean, they the linebacking core played awesome last night. 
I thought Mark Robinson was good before the targeting thing. And I thought Lakia was a little bit as well. Were you surprised? And I know it's just a game, but were you surprised that Mark Robinson started over Lakia Henry? Uh, yes and no. Mark, Mark is a fascinating story, by the way. Yeah, came, came on the roster last year as a walk-on running back from Southeast Missouri State because they didn't play last year, I don't think, and was in the running back room. That was a crowded room. We're like, you know, this kid is thick as hell. He's fast. He's athletic. Like, let's just go, let's go show him some some linebacker drills or scout team, and maybe he'll turn into something. And throughout practice and like the year and whatnot, you were like, damn, like this kid's like can be a problem off the edge. I mean, he could bend. He's fast. He's physical. Like, this kid might play next year. Did I think he'd be starting? <laughs> no, I did not think he'd be starting, but. I mean, he got so screwed on that whole targeting deal. Like, I think it's very, very possible he might have been the biggest story of that game last night if he's not taken out with that targeting deal, which can be debated till you know, kingdom come. But, yeah, that was a little shocking for me, I, I will say. Yeah, I think you're exactly right in that too, because he had a couple of plays early. And this is one of the, you know, one of the things I put like in on the board in the newsletter is most of the time when we have like, you know, a normal Saturday game, we kind of talked about like what we wanted this part of the podcast to be is like, we'll try to watch the game a second time before we get on the pod. I think that would be valuable uh, in a lot number of different ways. But that was when I was thinking about that last night, I was like, man, when we go back and watch this again, there are probably going to be a lot of Mark Robinson plays that may not even got mentioned on the broadcast or technically part of the play, but he was everywhere in that sense. And it just sucks. And we'll just, well, let's just get the targeting thing out of the way. I'm not going to ask you to define targeting. I'm not going to ask what those poor schmucks on TV have to do where the rules guy has to justify pretty much everything the officials do. Kiffin obviously dis- voiced his displeasure with it a couple of times talking about how he yeah. wished the Big Ten officials would let him tackle. I, I, look, I don't want to do the whole radio segment of what the targeting rule should be. I think anyone with a functioning brain at this point knows there should be degrees of it and the arbitrary ejection makes no sense. I understand the need for the rule. I understand trying to clean things up and make the game safer. There's numerous examples of why, of how it's gotten safer because of it. Yeah. But penalty structure aside and as shitty as the rule is, what do you do as a coaching staff when you have two guys that get ousted for targeting in that manner? I will add one caveat to this. You know, in the NFL every year, it's, this year it's the taunting thing. The last year of the quarterback wait or two years ago, where yeah. it's a real big emphasis, like two, three weeks in the year, and then it kind of dies off. I think yeah. that's maybe a little bit of what we're seeing because last night they were stopping games that people didn't even think were questionable targeting plays to, to review for targeting. Right. That aside, as a coaching staff, what do you do when you have two targeting penalties that clearly aren't the guy just being an idiot and being egregious? Like, what do you say? Do you say anything? Uh, I don't, I mean, you, I guess we'll start with the, with the actual targeting deal and we won't go too much into this because there was plenty of it on Twitter last night. It really kind of reminds me of like a basketball game or a soccer game where like the ref makes an early call and that kind of defines how the game's going to be officiated. So like an early yellow card or an early tech or a two early fouls on a big man. And then like, we just like, well, I just going to have to ref this, this way the whole rest of the game that's exactly what it felt like I think they literally just lost the game I mean they lost control of it with the targeting and but they weren't the wrong calls that's that's important to say I mean 
Mark Robinson was definitely questionable, but in the spirit of the law, whichever, whatever that means these days, it was technically right. But of course they don't review the next exact next play with a running back, just ducks his head into the linebacker. They didn't look at any of the offensive players doing it, which is supposed to be a huge emphasis in this rule and this whole deal. Um, but to get, okay, off- I didn't know that part. Why is that not part of it? Because that's where I was going to take you next. Why, why is it not count when the, when the running back low, I'm about to do it in live action and get away from the mic, but like when the running back lowers his head and changes, they love to say striking target or striking area when that's changed. Why is that not on the offense? It, it doesn't make any sense. And they, I think they've called it once or twice in a game. I feel like I've seen it be called, but it just doesn't, it's not, they're not consistent with it. I mean, right. even, on Lakia's hit, like Lakia, there was no reason for Lakia to just lead, like tackle high with, and with his helmet. Like it was just a bad idea. I know the split second, blah, blah, blah. But all he has to do is just wrap him up and knock him out of bounds. Instead, he just blasted him with his helmet. But Cunningham lowers his helmet into Lakia's helmet, too. So right. it's just like, why, why are we not even looking at what the offense is doing when that's part of the rule? We're so focused on the defense that we're just like completely forgetting about the offense lowering their crown, which as a running back, you want to talk about dangerous. Imagine like Ezekiel Elliott coming downhill and just lowering his helmet into your sternum or into your helmet while you're trying to tackle. I mean, it's just as dangerous the other way. It's just the way they, they handled it all last night was just so wrong. And we, I'm not going to even get to get into the rule of ejecting a kid, but um back to your question your question was about how do coaches handle it I mean you just have to on the fly you just have to deal with it you I mean tell your kids don't tack with your head but you know it's a contact sport it's difficult to do but they you can't do it so figure it out and it's on the kids to figure it out the coaches can only tell you how many times to not lower your head to, for tackle I mean Jake Springer did it like six times in the game last night and never got called for it Right. I mean, he could have been out easily. I mean, he literally did it six times. The guys are on the ground. Springer just comes in with a late hit with the top of his crown of his helmet. And for some reason, they never called it. So it's a weird deal. And it was a shit situation last night. Yeah. I mean, if we condoned underage drinking on this podcast, it's not that dissimilar to rolling in the corner bar at 19 years old. And when alcoholic beverage control rolls in, you're just the one that gets caught, even if there's hundreds of people in the bar doing it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why that made me think of that. Fun but, memories. I've yeah. been there. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the last thing I'll have kind of on on that aspect of it was one. I thought you made a good point about the Zeke Elliott thing, and not the pull of Bryce and DeChambeau. But if you're just looking at this from a sheer physics standpoint, the running back's the one that's already built up momentum and running downhill, right? Like the the defenders late to the action just by knowing who has the football. But the guy who has the very, you know, dangerous weapon on his head that actually is probably running at more force is never punished. And that doesn't seem to make sense to me either. But be that as it may, it's just like any other thing in life where it's going to take time to get changed. And it's just a hell of a lot slower than we'd like to see it. But at risk of turning this into a uh, a Terry McCauley rules segment, one of the things you said earlier about the secondary last night was interesting to me was I mentioned Ole Miss went to kind of that 3-2-6 look and really just kind of roll with that throughout the night. And that meant a lot of snaps at nickel for Tashim Johnson. And one of the things you said I thought was interesting that I hadn't thought about was 
not even just a schematic standpoint of this is what Louisville is doing, so we'll do that, which I think we get bogged down with so many times in football because it can be such a complicated game where you think there was some introspection in the sense that Ole Miss just looked at themselves and were like, this is what we do well, let's do this. And when you talked about having the athleticism and the depth in the secondary, it stuck out. Whether it was Otis Reese blowing up that fourth and two play that caused the fumble, there were a lot of – defensive backs whether that's corners or safeties making plays in whether it's run stopping or the very short passing game that just had not happened in years past and if there's a reason why this defense ends up being better do you think that's a predominant one because they were certainly better in that regard and I don't feel like that's a small thing no I think it's incredibly important for them to be to play the way they did last night. I mean, just coming downhill, I and mean, we haven't seen guys do that since, like, Trey Elston and Tony Connor. Like, yeah, good call. Coming downhill, whether you – even if you're just chopping a guy down, just making tackle, like, three or four guys, like, trying to wrap up. I mean, it was just really – I mean, I haven't seen it in a long time. And the guys just took so much pride. And I guess part of the kind of guys we were attempting to recruit were just guys who just love football, were physical – tackled well especially the db because we just hadn't had those kind of guys in that room and they did a hell of a job last night and they kept guys contained i mean it just it was really impressive um i think it'll be interesting to see what happens when they get really um someone a real quarterback that can really press the ball down the field what that looks like with some better receivers i think there was in the second half you kind of saw some guys in one-on-one matchups getting beat by some receivers I mean, there's always going to be a few negatives to all the positives. But, um, I mean, they were really a difference maker last night. Yeah, there were really not a ton of surprises in who played, right, per se. It was the usual suspects. I I maybe was a little surprised by how much Tasheem Johnson was out there. But that's strictly just what we just talked about. I mean, there was no way I was going to know what they were going to do from a formation standpoint, right? And so I guess the last aspect of that, is there anyone else that really stood out to you? I thought Jake Springer looked the part. I thought, I mean, I know Tyler Knight wasn't out there a ton on defense, but my God, talk talk about inspiration for all the short guys out there. He was just putting dudes in the dirt early on in the game. And like, I, you said something a couple podcasts ago about like you would not love to have Tyler Knight as your starting nickel or slot corner or whatever, but it's not a bad option to have. Tyler Knight's a great backup or second option in that role, is he not? Like that's a hell of a guy to have. Yeah, I think the most important – or not the most important thing, but you can't like build a team of Tyler Knights. Right. You'll get your ass kicked. You cannot build a team of exceptions. But – I mean, it just it's always beneficial to have a guy that's a leader that will literally do whatever you need to do. I mean, his play on defense is one thing, but he was literally the shield destroyer on kickoff. <laughs> he I mean, was. I, I, and he, Ole Miss was good he, on special teams last night. It pretty much all facets. Yeah. All, all facets were great. I mean, Mac, Mac, Mac Brown, I mean – Wait, that's our punter's name, right? Yes. No, I've still, I, for the, you're new to this podcast, I've spent years trying to build up Matt Brown's street credit because he had that streak in 18 where he got a bunch of personal fouls. And I was like, the hell with this outlaw punter. <laughs> this is now a narrative. Yeah. I mean, he does, he's not going to be punting a lot for this team, but he really just rolls out there, boots a 43 yarder in the air with eight second hang time and says, yeah, my job here is done. He's, he's a hell of a punter and he's a, he's a funny guy too. I just honestly kind of, forgot his name but um which is not very nice to him 
but uh where are we at Tyler oh Tyler Knight uh he, I mean just a bulldozer on special teams and the guy is five six he might not be 170 pounds and he is clock cold clocking the guy is supposed to be blocking for them on kickoff I mean he's just a he's a fun guy to watch like I said you don't want him starting that's still true that will always be true but he's just he's a nice piece to have and he plays with so much effort and guys love him and they feed off of that guy like kicking people's ass so it's a good thing to have one of the other things that stuck out defensively, one of the last things I had from a defensive note standpoint, because I think we did like in terms of like the macro story here, I think we summed it up pretty well. They looked great last night. You said it earlier. Louisville's game plan probably contributed that a little bit. It probably wasn't the most sound thing in the world. And so it's just kind of a wait and see thing. We could sit there and talk about, you know, the ceiling for the defense and all that, but I just don't find that one productive or two to be very good conversation because there's a long way to go. And that's why I think a lot of this is I've been kind of peppering you with personnel questions because I find that more fascinating after one game than what exactly the defense is going to be. And I think one of the most surprising parts of it to me was Louisville's inability to run the ball, particularly inside, because as advertised, I thought they were going to have pretty good guard play. And I thought one of the, if you were going to make a case for Ole Miss to struggle defensively was on a lot of the read and mesh point stuff that Louisville does in whether it's zone read or read option or all the cliches now that you have in uh, college football, RPO, all that shit. If you're going to make a case that almost would suck, it would probably start with their inability to stop Louisville running the football in between the tackles and really in between the center and the guard. And that really opening up things for Cunningham. Quentin Bivens played a hell of a game last night. He only had two tackles. But they, he really was like he took up – I'm stealing a term from you – took up a lot of space in the middle and really caused some problems up there to the point where – I'll, I'll let you – I'll wait on the second part of this question because I'm going to be guilty of um, kind of going in too many different directions at once. What did you think of Quentin Bivens' game last night? I thought he played great. Um, I mean, he was two-gapping, which is – I mean, it's just basically taking up two gaps. It's not, I'm not a pro, I know. But, um, I mean, he was getting in the backfield, getting penetration, playing hard. He played a lot of snaps, which for a defensive lineman is not the easiest thing to do in the world. Um, I thought he was awesome. I think he's developed into a really good player. Wilson Love deserves a ton of credit because he honestly looked different. I mean, he just looked bigger, more physical, faster, twitchier. I mean, all, all the positives you could say. I mean, he was really good last night. Uh, to be the Debbie Downer, I have real question marks about this team's ability to get to the quarterback against a better team. Um, you're going to play that three-man front. You're going to have to really, really be able to have some issues on the inside, be able to rush from the outside. And they had some some moments. I thought Tisdale played maybe his best game he's had at Ole Miss, like actually played with some actual effort for once. Um, Sam Williams inconsistent as always, but still is a physical physical specimen. I mean, he ran down Cunningham sideline to sideline, which is, I mean, that's that's hard to do. Absurd. Size. Absurd. Um, Cedric Johnson always just flashes. He's he was really good last night for what he did, but the depth I think is a real concern. Uh, I didn't see Jamon Gordon play. Iton played later. Katie Hill was in there. Um, that's the real – the ceiling of this defense will go with the defensive line, I think, if they can establish some de- depth and get to the quarterback a little bit better. But, it's, I mean, it's hard to complain after last night. They really did shut them down 
the whole first half. I mean, zero points. They had like what ten rushing yards up the first half. I mean, you can't sit here as a as us, you know, reporting on it, reading about it, looking at it, and say they they were negatives because they did awesome. But I think in the future there's going to be some questions there, and I think they had a great first test. But I'm interested to see what they look like. I mean, even against Tulane, honestly, which is hilarious to say how how we go from here. No, I'm, I'm glad you went there because I think it's a good point. And that's actually the next thing I was going to ask you. So as well as Quentin Bivens played and you're right, like, so that was one of the bigger shocks of last night from a defensive standpoint to me was you saw Isaiah Iton late and you didn't see Jamon Gordon at all. I haven't seen any of the snap count stuff, but I, I'm pretty confident that he did not play. Um, and so one of the things I was going to ask you, and I, I don't know how I didn't notice this on the depth chart sooner, but if, if I'm not mistaking I'm doing the math four, four, and three. No, maybe I'm just wrong. So I'm curious about this aspect of it because you talk about playing Quentin Bivens playing a lot of snaps as an interior defensive lineman and that not being easy to do. For most of the night, it was the Quentin Bivens show, and KD Hill came in whenever it seemed like Bivens needed a bit of a blow. But yeah. what I'm I'm curious about was, and I'm just looking framing this from a sheer depth chart standpoint. On all misses depth chart, they have two DN slots a defensive tackle slot and a nose tackle slot, but they run an odd front. So while on the depth chart per se, it's Iton and Jamon Gordon listed at the defensive tackle slot and it's Hill and Bivens in the nose tackle slot. Is it as simple as when they decided to go to the three, two, six aspect of it was that kind of eliminated the DT versus the nose tackle, or is it more complicated than that? Because I was surprised we did not see more of the two Juco guys. Yeah, I think the whole depth chart thing, like, was literally filled out by uh, maybe, like, the assistant trainer. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah, Kyle I, Campbell, I, that sounds like a job for Kyle Campbell. Can yeah, I mean, I, I love it. Like, Mingo didn't return punts, which I never thought he would because that's just not his skill set. Like, there was no reason for him to be back there. Uh, Jaden Jackson was, like, second on the depth chart and, like, did not see a snap. Same with Dennis Jackson. I don't remember seeing any of them out there. Um, I, the whole depth chart was clearly just whatever, which is fine. I mean, you cares? saw it in the other aspect of it. Mark Robinson was not listed as a starter. Yeah. There were two other examples. Like it didn't matter. And I'm not like, think- trying to, I was just trying to frame the no, no, no. that way. Yeah, I, I, know, completely, I, yeah. I completely understand what you're saying. Even Kiffin to his, he said it, I think after the game or during a halftime, he's like, yeah, we switched to three, two, six. Didn't really talk about it much because uh, we didn't want people to know. But so, I mean, basically anything you heard or knew could be thrown out the window because they're running a different scheme. and you know, they will not run that scheme every single down, every single play for the rest of the year. That's not how defense and college football works. They will add things, they will adjust and do different things against different teams. But to back to the defense tackles, like, I don't know, they're probably not ready. I mean, that's all you can say about it. It's not because they switch up schemes and they just weren't a fit. They probably weren't ready to play. And, you know, that's a little concerning a little bit. For sure. Uh, you talk about I mean, the ceiling of this defense being the defensive line when you have two, I mean, you know better than anyone when you recruit Juco guys, it's it's not to develop, it's to contribute now. Correct. And, you know, Iden played and Iden did look pretty good. He physically looks the part. Uh, Gordon, if we're being completely honest, I've never been very high on. Um, I think he's always been a little bit overrated. He's been listed at 6'4". He's probably like 6'2". Um, how does that work as a guy who can't get the benefit of the doubt on height? How do you get through life going two inches taller? Is that just accepted at some point? How does that work? Well, that's how recruiting services work. Fair <laughs> enough. We, 
we list ourselves as bullshit until someone <laughs> has to see us at a camp. And be like, oh, guess this kid actually isn't six four. He is six one. <laughs> Who would have fucking known? Like, that's sounds, really sounds happened. like you're speaking from experience, person. It's amazing. These poor kids, like, will come in and list themselves in their high school or huddle, and you finally get them to camp. There's like three inches shorter, twenty pounds lighter, and look like shit. And you're just like, oh. I would have never guessed it. <laughs> you know, it's just so nonsense. And Gordon, um, like, has like real traits, like a real like he has twitch and ability. I just thought from a size wise, he was always going to struggle. And you know, here we are again. I, I'm just not surprised he's not really playing. But Iton, I think the exact opposite of. I think he has a chance to be a really good player. He has real length, like good size. I think they're probably the same size, but he's a little bit more beefed up, a little more quick twitch. A little more raw, um, and so he played. So that's I think mean, that's good. Uh, but they need to develop some depth there. Some guys have got to step up. And I know I, I don't want to like shoehorn you into being the all-knowing guy on Ole Miss's scheme because I know that's not, not your. Yeah, I know, I know. I I know that's not your expertise. I know you're not there in the building every day. But like we ha- I have asked you about the differences between a straight-up nose tackle and a defensive tackle before, and I know there are differences there. But when you like say Ole Miss is playing a team that runs a much different system than Louisville and really kind of prides itself on hammering you in between the tackles. There's a world where Ole Miss might be called upon to have the Iton and Gordon play alongside Bivens and Hill, right? Just from a sheer depth art standpoint where you have the D end, the edge, but the two interior guys, like that's probably going to happen at some point this year, correct? Yeah. There'll be some point where it'll be Sam Williams playing outside backer. Then you'll have, yeah like Bivens and Iton and Tisdale playing as the down linemen. That's definitely a possibility. Actually, it's almost a probability. It'll happen at some point. I don't know when or where or why, but it'll happen. So before we end up spending two hours just uh, hammering away at the, uh, the, you know, the, the intricacies of last night, were there any other kind of main takeaways you had from uh from last night or from a defensive standpoint. I mean, I thought they, we kind of covered it. They were really good. They populated the football a lot quicker. There weren't any surprises from who played. Anything else stand out to you? Uh, I thought the corners played well. Prince played well, not just because he had an interception, but like he really was covering the guys well. Um, Linebacker depth was awesome. We've covered it. Campbell, Robinson, I thought Sistrunk looked really good. He's been able to keep on weight, which was always a question with him. Um, I mean, the, nah, da, 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 da. what Safety did you think though? That's probably a good, that's probably a good, like they did lose. We talked about them losing the two guys, but they, they seem yeah. fine with Sistrunk, Momo Sonogo and Austin Keys. That's gotta be a positive sign. Yeah. Keys is young and he's going to be a really good player. Um, I think he's just behind two other really good players. Uh, Sistrunk has just developed a classic development project. You know, it happens where you don't play for your first two years. I know it's shocking for some people, but he's gotten bigger. He looks fast. I mean, he had a hell of a sack. Um, he's a really good piece, can play every special teams. Momo, you know what you're getting out of Momo. Just he'll be there, and he'll make some plays, and he's a good leader. Um, they, yeah, it's a good group, really, really good group. Last thing I had before we kind of get into some of the, uh, the message board questions and then probably hit some SEC stuff was – the DeAndre Prince thing, it was cool. They kind of shouted out the story or whatever. Kind of what, what 
what did you guys see in him out of high school? I know he had to go back to the Juco route, but talk about a kid that seems like has a lot of raw tools. I mean, anyone you talk to, that seems to be evident, but what did you think of how he played and how Ole Miss could use him going forward? Yeah. I mean, he, I think I've mentioned him so many times just as what he did as a freshman was so impressive. Um, He's just got ridiculous hips, great speed. I mean, he's got what you want as a really good SEC corner. I wouldn't say he's elite. He's not a Stingley or a Sertain, but he's a guy that Ole Miss really hasn't had as a kind of a real dude since Golson, maybe. Um, I mean, he's he's a tough ass player. He's he's smart. He understands scheme, and you know it was tough when he left, but I think he's really matured and understood how important he is and how good he can be. And I mean, he's a really good player and he's a super important piece to have a corner that you can really trust out there with some of these elite receivers that you're going to be seeing in the future. Let's get to some message board questions and then, because I think we kind of covered everything last night. They looked good as advertised offensively. Oh, actually we have one more thing. Uh, It's time for the Otis Reese-gasm on this podcast. Led the team in tackles. Talk about you. Know, you talk about the the aspect of, you know, this is what we're best at from putting the six defensive backs on the field and just let them fly around to make plays. It seems like Reese is the epitome of that. I mean, that whether it was the fourth and two, he blew up for the keys recovery. He was really good. Just what did you? I mean, when a guy like that like is open to transfers, is it just a matter of begging him to come there, or is there anything else that goes into it? Like, what did you see in him? Yeah, I mean, he's a really good player, and he's a player that can play like he's out there as a DB, but like he is so physical and big that he can basically be a third linebacker in some situations. Um, He's, he's really, really good. He definitely uh, helps that defense as a whole. And from a physicality standpoint, he's always around. Um, He definitely gets lost in coverage a little bit. I think that's his weak point. He's uh, definitely not the best man on man cover guy on that team. Um, but just everything else he brings is so valuable that you can live with that to an extent. Let's hit these questions. Was there a biggest surprise for you from last night? Um, I'll go back to it. I mean, I think Hudson Wolf seeing the field in the second, the second uh, offensive possession was a huge surprise for me. Um, I would go there and Mark Robinson starting at linebacker. Those two are very positive surprises that um, I would consider the biggest ones to me. This probably gets into you talking about Louisville's game plan being shit to some degree, but he just asked, what do you think Louisville's record record is at the end of the year? Are they bad or was the Ole Miss defense improved? I know we probably answered that part of it, but look, it is the ACC, but Louisville definitely looked worse than they were advertised to be. Yeah, they. I, I even think – I don't actually know if they're that bad. I think they just might have had just one of the worst first-half game plans I've ever seen. Um, I do think it's a product of Ole Miss controlling the game at the line of scrimmage and on offense to where Louisville was like, damn, like what the hell do we do now? But I mean, they, God, I mean, they were just running the same plays over and over again with no luck. I mean, Cunningham was lost. I mean, I think they could be a really bad team, but I think a lot of it had to do with how Ole Miss was playing on defense. It must, am I crazy to say the starting point of that was them kind of not eliminating because it didn't feel like Louisville tried that often. But I feel like when you have a lot of those read concepts, when the 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 give is kind of a given that he's not going to run free for 20 yards and have a big gain every time, that really limits the effectiveness of it. And I think that's probably a little bit of a hat tip to Bivens. Is that some accuracy to that? 
Yeah, but I think it was scheme too. I mean, the way they were handling those short yardage zone plays, which I they mean, sucked at last night, like you like you mentioned, like Ole Miss yeah. was very good in those situations, but they have not been in the past. Yeah, well, I mean, basically, I mean, it was just we're going to crash Otis Reese off the edge, and he's going to eliminate the running back, and then we're going to have you know Campbell or Sistrunk kind of wrap around the side of the line of scrimmage and just have the quarterback. So every time Cunningham pulled it. You know, the running back's getting smacked by Reese or Springer, and then he's going to run, and Campbell just has contained right there. I mean, it was a perfect game plan for what you needed to do there, but it's easier said than done. The players have to go do it, and they they controlled all of those plays perfectly. It's probably a point that hasn't been talked about today, was there is an element of a superior versus inferior coaching staff, and we got into a little bit of the Satterfield saga last time, but – Ole Miss definitely was was had the upper hand on paper in in the coaching aspect of things. I don't really think there's any sort of debating that. So I, I don't know if that was talked about a lot today, but I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, next question: This guy uh, Ant- Homewood Reb checks in answering his own question. Who's your favorite player, and why is it Caden Costa? I'll, I'll never understand. I understand Ole Miss sucks at kicking field goals, but like, I mean, Caden Costa's from Louisiana, so he's one of my favorite players. But like. Why do we keep talking about this? Because no, like, Luke Logan was keep so asking bad. Questions? Not even message boards. Like, for the freaking press conference, like, who gives a shit who the kicker is? Because no one knows how to ask it. What the hell do you ask about what goes into a kicking battle? I'd love to know. If you give me some tips, do you know what goes into a kicking battle? Is it just making Making kicks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what goes into it. And, like, the funniest thing is they pulled out our boy, Kale Nation, who, like, is so lucky he's not a meme for his name. They didn't even show him. Like, he is so lucky. He's – but like, that's, that's an amazing name. I fired like, off some smart-ass tweet thinking it was Costa. I didn't know it was Nation until after the fact. I thought it was Costa, too. I'm like, oh, shit, well, this sucks. This kid was supposed <laughs> to be good. And so then I was like, oh, good. it's like, oh, we're doing a short, long quarter field goal thing? Like, why <laughs> they, they why? should probably mix that idea yeah I, it's, who, like god who cares i only care about the punter because our punter is a boss <laughs> he actually is really good at what he does like the kicker thing is so dumb like just make the kick if you don't make the kick we can talk about it but they made kicks in the conversation <laughs> which is a welcome sight i don't know if you saw this but I, I i dug this up from last night didn't take a whole lot of ding you know that was the only only the third field goal of 40-plus yards since the end of the 2017 season Ole Miss has made. That's not great. Didn't know it, but not surprised by it. But but on this team, like this team, that will be the last game they kick three field goals. That's That's a guarantee. That is an absolute guarantee. They only punted twice last night. They did. My man, Mac Brown, didn't get enough camera time. This team's going to go for it on fourth downs across the 50 on almost any situation. So who cares who the kicker is? (laughs) What was the biggest issue with the run game early? We hit a little bit of that, but he asked more specifically, why could Henry Parrish not get going? Um, I guess it's kind of just an opportunity kind of deal, kind of like the, the receivers. You know, Ely was doing his thing. Snoop had a great game. Uh, I guess the defense kind of called the right plays when Parrish was in. Yeah, Parrish had some good runs here and there. Um, there's just a lot of depth. You know, it, like I think we mentioned this earlier, like I don't see anyone on this team running for 1,000 yards. And it's not because they're not good enough to, just because they got so many of them back there. So, yeah, they had, issues, they had some issues running the ball early, and that's very, very important to this offense. Um, so they might look at that and try a few different blocking schemes or whatnot, but they'll be fine. We covered this earlier, but I just formed it in a question. Is Don Terrier Drummond one of the more underrated recruits of the last several years? Uh, 
he could be. I, w- I would make the case that A.J. Finley might be up there as well. I mean, didn't really get talked Good about last player. night. Yeah, because he didn't get talked about because he didn't get beat, like, ever. I mean, he's he's a great player. He's one of my favorite recruits ever, one of my first recruits that I really, like, made a relationship with because he was a Summerall guy down in Mobile. Um, I, I would probably put A.J. Finley as, like, the most underrated recruit. I mean, Auburn didn't want him. Bama gets all the best ones, so I understand why they weren't interested. But, like, we were his only SEC offer. It was us and, like, Iowa and Purdue. And, you know, this kid's a 6'2 kid playing cornerback at a really good program in Alabama. I mean, and a great kid. Never understood that one. But I, th- I think he would be probably the most underrated. What should I watch in the upcoming game against such an inferior opponent that will tell me anything at all? I'm actually interested in that part of it. We'll start with there because he had one more question for that. Like when when you're when you're particularly as an evaluator, what do you look at in those games? I guess the guys that don't get a lot of playing time, what they look like on the field. I mean, I'm sure you'll probably see a lot more of Kentrell Bullet, kind of see what he can do. Um, some of your younger offensive linemen will get a chance to play, and maybe they'll show something in the game they haven't in practice. Same on the defensive end. You know, you'll see some of those younger DBs um get in there and kind of what what do they look like in a game atmosphere are they kind of shell-shocked uh you, it's only, you can only take so much it's austin p i mean they are going to kick their ass thoroughly but there's some things you can watch and be interested in uh we got a question about linebacker depth from baldwin reb not ignoring your question but we did pretty much cover that uh yeah. you covered this a little bit but it's worth asking well how do you think the three two six will hold up against more physical teams i think probably the short answer to that he goes on to say he thought this that he was right on what we're at at the om strength on defense is the secondary so play it as long as the dbs can hold up in the run game thought that tashim johnson was really good last night for a true freshman but i imagine so your answer is some version of they're going to have to get out of that by some point they'll just be forced out of it um i mean not forced out of it they'll probably have to play some different, you know, versions of it. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see because they get, they get Bama early, you know, and I think they're going to have a, a really tough time there if they keep with a three-down lineman. Um, I don't know if you watched a lot of Bama, but that offensive line, I mean, they're, they're really damn good, which is not a hot take, obviously. Um, but, I mean, I, they're capable of staying in it and still being competitive. I mean, that's they're not going to just avoid it if they think it's their strength. Uh, we'll just have to see how it looks down the road. Does Luke Campbell like being called Luke Cafferty or Luke Keekley? <laughs> is Luke Cafferty, is that from Friday Night Lights? That's got to be, right? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's exactly what He kind of looks like both of them. Does look like Luke Cafferty for Friday Night Lights. He has a uh, little Luke Keekley in him too, doesn't he? A little bit, yeah. Luke Keekley, one of my favorite players ever, even though he's a rival of the Saints. Um, that's a little, it's a little far-fetched for chance right now, but <laughs> – but yeah, he does look like Cafferty from the show. Shit, I think Keekley looks like Cafferty, and Cafferty looks like uh, Campbell, and Keekley yeah. looks like Campbell. This is just a try. This blew my mind. We're gonna have to move on, or I'm gonna say something dumb. Yeah. Uh, weirdest mispronunciation of your last name? I'll handle this one. I think he's talking about me. Uh, I don't know Ripley. Some people just add a letter in there. I, I get it if you say Ripey or any of that other stupid shit. But when you just start adding letters, that's where I'm not – particularly when it's government employees. Like, you have the fine print. Why are you adding an L? It's not on the paper. Yeah. Anyway, personal rant there. Yeah, um, Rottenberg, I get that one all the time. Oh, there we go. I'm glad I'm not alone in that one. Yeah, oh, yeah. at least no one's adding letters to your name. When someone starts adding an L, I'm like, okay, they can't read, and that's okay. 
Yeah. To, to continue this line of questioning, give me one reason why Ole Miss doesn't have an assistant coach with the stripper. Why? Okay. This is definitely a Friday night night's reference. Moving on. Okay. He's keeping up with it. I'll, I respect <laughs> it. Some, some Riggins talk there, I'm sure. <laughs> Hook, line, and sinker there from Walnut Reb, because I didn't know where that one was going. I had not read it before. <laughs> uh, who leads the team in rushing at the end of the year? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I, I think it'll be uh, – it's not it's going to be a bad if I'm wrong. I, I think it'll be uh, Parrish. Oh, not Ely. No, I don't think it'll be Ely. I think it'll be Parrish. Okay. Why, why do you say that? I'm just curious. Uh, I just think throughout the season they're going to be throwing the ball to Ely so much more. Not, I don't think he'll be out of the slot, but I think you're going to see a lot of the – kind of when we need to wear people down, it'll be a lot more Parrish and Snoop than Ely. Uh, Who leads the team in tackles? Oh, go ahead, finish. Sorry, I thought you were uh, capped that one off. No, that's it. I mean, I I think it'll be either – I think Parrish will end up kind of solidifying himself at some point throughout the season as kind of a go-to running inside back. But, um, yeah, that's all I got. The early favorite for leading the team in tackles has to be Chance Campbell, right? I mean, it yeah. maybe end up being one of the secondary guys, but talk about just being all over the place. That's probably who I'd bet on. Yeah, I'd bet on Campbell for sure. Over under 37 passing touchdowns for Matt Corral. From a sheer passing touchdown standpoint, I guess he's technically behind the eight ball, right? I mean, what do you think that matters in the slightest, but he only yeah. had one. Literally does not matter at all. No, no, not at all. But just from this guy's question, I'll go under just because he's got 11 games to get 36 more. What's the, what's the Ole Miss record? Is, th- is that 37? Is that why he's asking it? It might be. I'll have to get our uh, the Rippy Rights Research Department on that one. Yeah, I don't um, know. but but they we they I don't think he's going to throw. That's his high. I have a nice little future on Matt Krause Heisman's odds. I think his biggest deficit of getting it is because unless he scores on the bomb play, we we've been running the ball so effectively in short yardage that like a lot of those goal line, it's going to be Snoop. Give me a lot of running touchdowns, and it's not going to be to. Corral's detriment because we're winning, but from a stats perspective, I don't see him getting to 37 by any means. How scary does the offense become with the addition of Braylon Brown and a healthy Casey Kelly and or Hudson Wolf? Uh, it gets a lot better. I know nothing about Braylon Brown. I think he's a good looking kid who's got a chance to contribute, but there's three really damn good receivers out there. Not really worried about what Braylon Brown looks like, which is not, you know, being you know, disrespectful to the question at all. I think the more important thing is Casey Kelly and Wolf coming back really, really, really changes up the what you can do in offense. You can get two tight ends. It's going to be – that's super important. Receiver depth's there. And for two of them, I, I honestly have no idea on their injury status. I mean, how we were speculating about Casey Kelly's ski trips earlier. So I'd like to see what they are from a health <laughs> standpoint before I dive too far into that. Two questions here. Do you deal – do you, Neil – Weldon, Zach, and Chase refer to yourselves as the squad or the Grove Bros? I'm more of a Grove Bros guy. This is the first I've heard of this. I've never talked to Neil or Chase in my life, I don't think. But we're part of a squad. <laughs> I think we're part of ourselves as the Rebel Grove Alliance, actually. I'd like to get that on record. <laughs> I think I met Neil one time in the office. He came in at one point. I think I said hi to him or something. Um, but Well, literally, did you know we have a blood oath. It's the Alliance because I've heard alliances are very powerful in college football. Yes, I'll, I can be a part of that. I want to be a part of the group. Now that this is more or less of a side hustle, do you feel a bit freer to have the hot take? No, not really at all. I don't find – I get the whole, like, I get what the business model – I get what this industry is in terms of television. 
but I've just never, I've never been like out to make as much. No, don't get me wrong. You sponsor this show. Like, like you do something that's halfway legal. You can have a sponsorship on this show. I'm not a not capitalist, but I'm not selling myself out for the internet cloud and the hot take. I've never found that to be riveting conversation. My whole goal with this podcast is to find people smarter than I am that I can pelt questions off of like Weldon, like, you know, Colin in baseball, Bracken Ray basketball, probably just a little spoiler alert there to bounce ideas off of and create interesting conversation. I've never understood the hot take, never been into the hot take. I understand like it's like, I guess appeal in terms of like this whole internet and like, you know, get views culture, but no, I I've never been like, hell yeah, I'm a takesman. Now it's my side hobby. Let's fire this shit away and see what, see how many retweets we can get. It's never really been my thing. Anyway, as far as positions goes, where does linebacker? Oh, this is a good one. Uh, As far as positions go, where does the linebacker rank in terms of how difficult it is to find legitimate sec talent? Oh, this is a good question. This is a really good question. So we did, kind of a study and I hate studies because it's people who do a lot of them just think they're a lot smarter than you. Correct. We did one on on linebackers because Ole Miss had such a problem recruiting them. So we went back and we did all of the high school films on every starting college linebacker in the SEC. And we were like, okay, what did their film in high school look like? It is genuinely impossible to pinpoint who is going to be an elite linebacker. It is damn near impossible i mean look at devin white played running back for the majority of his time in north louisiana um two of the guys that were starting at a&m last year were like safeties um the most obviously one of the best linebackers in the league christian harris i played high school football with his older brother um at christian harris the linebacker at alabama christian played at u high which was one of our rivals as a 210 pound corner Oh. Did not play linebacker. LSU didn't want him, didn't see him as a linebacker, didn't know what to do with him, committed to A&M. Saban finally got a, you know, figured out about him, was like, okay, I want this kid, and I'm going to make him a linebacker. And he started as a true freshman. That's how difficult it is with linebackers. It's just like tight ends. Like, there's so many different positions you can play and different things you can do with them. You never know how someone's body will develop, whether they can hold the weight or can't, whether they're going to get bigger or smaller. It's so tough to figure out just, you know, a Chance Campbell kind of linebacker or whatnot, um, how they're going to develop and what they're going to look like in two or three years. It's super, super, super difficult to pinpoint who's going to be an elite linebacker. Pretty good answer. I don't obviously have a ton to add on that one. Uh, Louisville scored on every possession in the second half. What do you make of that? I don't really make a ton of it other than maybe some slight regression to the mean and the game being a 26-point game. Yeah, I think you're on spot on. You know, you can't be perfect the whole game. Uh, they're definitely going to come out with at least a little bit of sack, lack of urgency, but I, I'm not overly concerned about that. Last one, does Kiffin have this highest ceiling of anyone on the Saban coaching tree? That seems subjective, but I would offer Kirby's pretty good, but potentially Kiffin? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm not a big Kirby Smart fan because I think he's a terrible in-game coach, but the dude was in a national championship and maybe has the best team in the country this year. So I'm going to go with Kirby. <laughs> Last thing before we get out of here, I said we'd rip around the SEC. Let's do some SEC scores. I will we'll, – we will do a little bit heavier segment of this as we get later into conference play on this podcast, but today we'll just kind of do a little bit of a drive-by um, and feel free – Can we start to- with LSU? 
Yeah, go ahead. Did, we, might, we, might, we might start and end with this team. Go uh, ahead. That team sucks. I mean, they really, they, that team is such an embarrassment from every single level. They got absolutely manhandled by UCLA, who is not that good. Don't let anyone fool you. That team is not that good. They will maybe be the fourth best team in the Pac-12, which Cal lost to Nevada, Oregon State lost to Purdue, Washington State lost to Utah State, and Washington lost to Montana. The Pac-12 sucks. LSU went over there. Coach O's talking shit to fans. And they they absolutely got manhandled on every level. It's like these guys, they won the national championship in 19. Everyone leaves. And then all the players that are still there that didn't go to the NFL were like, well, we're just going to, you know, we're going to be just as good the next year. And we're going to be just as good the next year. Like, who cares? Ogeron hires two terrible coordinators, Bo Pelini without even freaking interviewing him. Which is an unbelievable hire. If he not won a national title, he would have been crucified for weeks. That was an unbelievably bad hire that never got covered. They, we literally laughed about it in the team room when we were doing the LSU eval really? during the spring because it's a joke. The guy was in 2007, like running a good offense, like football changes in 15 years. It was a joke hire. He didn't even interview him. Then he hires Linehan, who, like, in, in, in I mean, not sorry, but I'm rumbling in NFL circles is like, you know, this guy's done. We hire him. But the offense wasn't even the problem last year with that team. The defense was such shit that it was just amazing. So now we get to this year. You've got the most hyped road game. There was maybe twenty to 25,000 LSU fans in Los Angeles. The most excited LSU fans have been about a road game maybe ever. You've got all this hype on this team. You've got the baby Joe Brady's are here. The defensive coordinator that fell to us after we missed out in our first seven is here. And we're ready to go. We're going to beat the crap out of UCLA. And they got manhandled. It was so embarrassing. It was so discouraging just being that small, you know, been an LSU fan my whole life. They, they play with no heart. They sucked. And I think they may have lost it completely. I mean, there's already stuff out there about Ogeron having issues with boosters this summer. It's how, it's how slimy LSU can be from an administrative standpoint that they're literally going to turn on this guy. If they beat UCLA, Suns and Roses, no one cares. Now that they lost, it's like, oh, I almost forgot about all that sexual assault and bullshit that Ogeron's been doing and dealing with throughout you know, the past offseason. I mean, there's going to be so much kiff into LSU crap coming up. I would not touch that job with a 10-foot pole if I was kiffing. It's a better job than Ole Miss. And there's no doubt about it. I mean, it might be the easiest job in college football with the exception of Alabama. But they're in trouble. I mean, they it was just a total shit show on, on every single level of that team. I don't think I have to ask this, but it sounds like you don't think he survives the year. I would say it's almost impossible. I would say it's almost impossible for him to survive the year. Because well, we'll get to some of the other teams, but that schedule, if you look at it now after seeing what you've seen so far – I mean, that could be a six-win team easily. Yeah, you, I mean, the, I talked to the LSU guys, and they had the, like, a couple of them, and I was like, well, I, I kind of started making the argument in the newsletter they could be 10-2 and two and not actually be that good. But now it's like, who the hell are they going to be? Do you feel great, even as bad as State was over the weekend? Do you feel great about them going to Starkville and winning? Yeah. Oof. I mean, 
I do feel a little bit better because I watched a little bit of that Mississippi State game this morning. And that's not a very good team either. But, I mean, LSU, God, I mean, I can't, I can't even get over it how bad it was. First of all, there's, they have a walk-on running back playing majority of the snaps at LSU. They had a, Their star running back is out with academics. They had another guy out with academics. Their supposed starting linebacker, which was supposed to be this big secret, was a freaking walk-on from Catholic high school who tore his knee up to practice before the game started. This is at LSU. You're starting – basically starting a walk-on running back and a walk-on middle linebacker. I mean, it, that you can talk about all the talent they have, but, I mean, what is going on over there? It is just embarrassing. It was so bad. There's no way he's making it out of the year. They already hate him already. I mean, it's amazing. That felt cathartic on your end. To save us some time, because it is week one, I will, unless you just have a gigantic hot take about any of these teams that played Sisters of the Poor this week, we can just bypass them. Tennessee, 38-6. Close for a half. Uh, that, could be, they, that can be tough. I actually really like Heupel. I think he's going to do a really good job there. Don't count that one as a guaranteed victory by any means. That offense will get – Rolling that uh they looked like crap in the second quarter happens uh that team has a chance to be a little annoying that's the classic weird late october game where you don't think you should lose the game but then all of a sudden you're like oh shit we're in a dog fight i i kind of agree i thought joe milton actually looked pretty capable yeah, uh, yeah. a and m 41 10 over kent state okay they were they were in a dog fight in the first half yeah um i think if you're old miss you would have really liked to have them early in the season with getting that quarterback ready. Um, I think Ole Miss is going to face them at a time when they're getting things really rolling. Uh, that team's really good. Don't uh, They really came out weird. Kids first start, that's tough. Uh, that team's really good. They'll Which is the only question mark. They were ready to rock. I mean, even replacing four starters on the offensive line, it was kind of similar to where Ole Miss was a couple of years ago where it's dudes you've had in the program a while. They just haven't played a ton of snaps. No, Defense yeah. is loaded. It's just Ken Haynes King be good. And it's not even that good because you saw what Kellen Mond got them, and it was 11-1, and one, so agree yeah. there. Uh, Florida, 35-14 over FAU. Florida uh, just seems aggressively slightly above average on every category. Yeah, I mean, FAU. But that's not good enough to win the, win the East. No, 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 no. Uh, FAU is really bad. I think Mullen will get everything he can out of Emory Jones because despite what anyone says about Mullen, he's a hell of a quarterbacks coach. They kept Grantham for God knows what reason. They were so bad on defense last year. I'm not very high on Florida. I think they've got a low ceiling at quarterback. I don't think that defense is that dynamic. Um, we'll have to see what, what comes of them. They never play anyone in the uh, non-conference schedule, so I feel like you never know what Florida is like. So I don't have too much else to add, but I'm not that high on them. Auburn beats Akron 60-10. to 10. Akron sucks means nothing. We'll see what they look like against Penn State. South Carolina starts a grad transfer coach and wins 46-0 over Eastern Illinois. Hell of a story with Zeb Nolan. That is a cool story. I I don't know what to think about them. I was kind of wanting to tune into that game to see the kid play, uh, or the man play, I guess we should say. Uh, I don't have no faith in Beamer to be able to do anything there, though. Uh, Vanderbilt, can we just say, oh, God. My brother will not be going or attending any more games there. I can assure you that. They Your brother's suck. at Vanderbilt? Yeah, he's a senior there. Oh, shit. What does he think about losing 23-3 to to, to ETSU? He was at – he didn't care. He, he, I mean, those kids don't care about Vanderbilt sports. They love baseball and basketball because they're fun and they're good. 
But football, they don't even go to the games. He was at the U.S. game, like, on Sunday. I don't even think he went to the Vanderbilt game. Obviously, they suck. <laughs> Kentucky wins 45-10. to 10. I think Kentucky's got a chance to be decent, to be pretty good. I'm not really sure what to make of them offensively, but they have some talent on defense. Still wait and see. They played uh, – the- Kentucky has a chance to be damn good. I, I, I think so, too. Why do you think that? The the Levis, Levis kid was 18-26 for 367 and four touchdowns. He looked good. He look, I mean, now ULM sucks. They are very – I keep saying sucks is bad. But they are really bad. Very, 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 very bad. But Levis, I mean, he's got a real arm. They've got really good running backs. Maybe one of the best offensive lines in the SEC. Defensively, they're incredibly well coached. Summerall is there, so I know a little bit more about this team. They're really good. I think they're better than Florida. I know they had that Achilles heel against them, but I, I see Kentucky as like they're probably the second best team in the East. I don't know if they can take Georgia, but they're definitely going to be able to take more teams than you'd think because they have a real threat at quarterback for once. Missouri beats Central Michigan 34-24. I, I honestly, if you told me this game didn't happen, that would that would not shock me either. I don't know anything about either team. No, nothing about either team. Fair enough. Rice and Arkansas. Arkansas wins 38-17. Probably not the strongest off defensive performance from Arkansas, who really wasn't that good after the first four games last year, but seems like with them it comes down to can K.J. Jefferson actually be competent enough to score enough points to hang in games. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of put all the questions of why Ole Miss didn't pursue K.J. Jefferson that hard to rest. Literally, it came to complete fruition. He is a really good athlete. He's tough to bring down. He's just not a very accurate quarterback. And that's kind of a shame because Kendall Bryles is a really good coach. And if he had, like, a dude that could really, you know, threaten you, I think that team would be a problem. But it's not going to be this year. Alabama just beats the shit out of Miami. Uh, Miami was technically ranked 14th. I don't think that was warranted, but – also, there was this like halfway thought that Alabama might take a half step back, and that doesn't appear to be uh, likely either. No, absolutely not. Uh, they are really dynamic. They're incredibly well coached. They're incredibly talented at most every level. Bryce Young's a stud. I mean, he's so smooth. Um, not even a hint of concern with him. Defense is probably the best they've had in the last two years, just from a depth and athlete standpoint uh they're dominant they are tough they play hard they're going to be a real problem everyone's kind of just playing for second i didn't see a team that looked even remotely close to them they could have put 60 on miami um they're really good they're also an automatic first half line play they're only they were only favored by 10 points in the first half against miami that was a joke I mean, that was an absolute joke. Um, be playing that one every single week on them. That's an autoplay. They're they're damn good. And then the last one, honestly, I couldn't agree more where they're like, you look around, I know it's week one and we've got a long way to go and you can have injuries and all kinds of other stuff. But how the, the in terms of just the front seven, the biggest threat to them could be in the SEC East. Georgia beats Clemson 10 to three in what was a resounding win. Again, I watched this game, ate some uh, chicken tenders, and I'd had a couple Coors Lights at that point, but that was one of the more dominant defensive line performances I've seen in a while. I'm not even sure Clemson was that terrible. Correct me if I'm wrong, but holy shit, Georgia's defensive front looked good. That was a huge win. Yeah, I think there was real – there was like real sharp money on Georgia, and I have a guy that I talked to about this here and there, and I was like, why why are all these guys picking Georgia? 
And they were like, there is not a chance that Clemson will be able to run on Georgia. Like Clemson's offensive line is just not what it has been in years. And Georgia's defensive line is stupid. And it literally came exactly like that. I mean, that, that team's going to be a problem on defense. They are, have recruited maybe even better than Alabama on that side of the ball recently in the past two or three years. They're really, really good. However, they are still in about 2012 on offense. And if they don't, their ceiling will be determined by what they can do in offense. And I don't, I don't see it. I, I just don't think they can beat Alabama running offense like that. He is Weldon Rodenberg, Ole Miss recruiting specialist. We will dive a little bit deeper into the around the SEC aspect of this podcast as we get later in the season and actually have some real matchups. I uh, bogged you down for almost two hours just talking some uh, some Ole Miss Louisville, but I uh, I had a blast doing it, honestly. And, uh, time just kind of flew by. You can see behind me I'm in this new apartment. It has gone from light to dark here about immediately. But I appreciate the time, dude. Obviously, we'll catch up again on Sunday as this podcast now that it's designed, like operating the way it's designed, we'll kind of rehash some things, talk about it Sunday, put that up Sunday night, Monday morning. But, uh, dude, I appreciate this. was a hell of a lot of fun. This flew by. Yeah, I wish I could have worded my LSU rant better, but I, ha- I had to get something out of there. It was so bad. <laughs> Look, I thought it was well done. We can't always just be perfect on things. It's not like you had a prepared statement. It was uh, no. there's no cameras around. We could... <laughs> I thought, about I thought it, it was well done. I thought but, about it preparing a statement because that was that that's how I felt about it but yeah here we are take it easy brother we'll hire you next week all right have a good one and that was Weldon Rodenberg I appreciate everybody tuning in if you made it to the end this far I hope you enjoyed the podcast thought it was a great conversation and we will have at least 12 more of these probably 13 with the bowl game assuming Ole Miss makes a bowl game but uh any feedback is always appreciated I really enjoyed the conversation love talking with Weldon I appreciate his time